0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode has written a beautiful collection of poetry, and here she is to introduce herself.
1: My name is Shauna Paul. Um, I am a poet and a teacher and a mother and a grandmother.
0: Shauna Paul's book, Blue Gate, is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Lavsay Poetry Prize. In our conversation, we talk about birds and community and the intersection of nature and industry. Shauna starts our conversation with a reading from Blue Gate.
1: I'm going to start off, um, let's just acknowledge the territories. I'm reading from home, which is Coast Salish territory. And um, this poem is a response to a demonstration that I was at um, for the Picton inquiry, which was a really hard one. And so I was downtown in Vancouver. Um, when this poem arrived, started to arrive anyway. Something in the long bone of the thigh asks music. Homespun the notes, rustle and sure, trouble her, stir low at the join of the hip, the waiting so long. So long her head bent toward the belly of things, underneath as water, so long. And inside the city today is shorn, unmasked, the metal and mirror inquiry shudders, drum circle of terrible knowledge spirals up the intersection, hearts steam to vapor, in air the gut singing, the torn-from-us presences come to shine as daylight's last flare, its hot detox. Then the charged feuds of evening, and she, in her calm feet, her blue-dark bones listens, and the cords spill, low at the join of the hip, this movement in solace. Where I work, we have, I work in a park on the lands of the Hunkamina man and Skohomish-speaking people in what is now called Burnaby, and um, the houses that I support the artists in are on the other side of the lake from my office, so um, this is a homage to the lake and it's grace and some other things (laughs) all the way all the way around we made it all the way around this lake your bell sound hands and the lightning you sometimes wrestle sometimes ride and me with my slow-eyed, slack-kneed gelding all the way, all around the path beside the water and every shape and sound and motion and line that wonders us, present and harbored. And now we can rest there the way we always wanted, easy on opposite shores, the brazen grace of her belly between us rippling all the way. And try to understand the sky the way the sky is today, all around us, willow bend, high away, blue, all around the waver of it, slender and bending, tender as cello notes, mellowed and held. An air close, close, as a deep story shared, all the way the body unfolding and mouth soft, the words only few, and then there are the leaves scoring sound across the hours for wind. They are flame fringe of earth shawl, leapt up from taproot, old the tremor under under being what sustains us, and all around and beyond any longing and closer is witness. And now we understand all the way how walking softly near beloved things renews us, helps us go on without fuss or even words. We can let ourselves flare all the way, all the way around, make song tremble. So this next poem is. Um, I grew up in what is called Richmond, which is Musqueam territory, and um, mostly outside, we had a big piece of land, and it was all farmland, and and it's a river delta, so it was a very rich earth, and so this is a poem of just remembering that freedom that I had, and that we didn't really think much about, but I certainly value it now. And I'm going to share this poem for my granddaughter, Shea, um, just with the message that, you know, there's always more to learn about where we come from. At her cheek, the wings spread cedar, this is entrance this is the time before sidewalks street lamps on the path between hedge and fencing each bow caresses face shoulders belly hands she travels through to where fields roll broad and unkempt flood pools like mirrors in the dips beyond the stolid flanks of sleeping horses steam rising from their lowered heads there is the sagging clapboard shed under the cypress its blackened doorway where a new lamb comes snuffles and roots suckles the edge of her rubber boots it is spring and like always the river has slipped its banks salmon appear in the low water their bottle-cap eyes snare the swifting current, thicken it, hold. The night is close, plush, cloth in its holes, star, star, tear of moon. Great animals from before the parceling, the squaring off of land, rustle, bonelet their flesh and Thinned to shimmer, they drape the skies, bray. She does not know the cedar's brush, the horse's dreams, the lamb's hungry tether, nor the salmon's watchful force as blessing. Even the ambling sky beasts she cannot fathom. Though when morning pours its slender curve of light, her boots tucked muddy on the back porch stairs, the day envelops her, and all these old things fold in and in a letter from home and here then I'm going to try this long poem, which um is kind of a chronicling of my own experience of watching the um, not the most recent, but the third in my experience um Wet'suwet'en intervention, and uh I was paying attention to that story, which is a very long story of um honoring the lands there by the people um, and uh when the harassment came to a peak I was watching it on my telephone and so um, this is a story of my own experience of witness but also I think a story of our time and um, one of the tangles that will be ongoing and hard to bring to good conclusions yeah. this is a bit of a long poem so We'll see how it goes. Yeah. And this one is for Frida Houston. This time I watch it live on the bus on my way to work. After weeks of harassment, surveillance. After years of defending unceded lands, Unistoten. Lands of drinkable water, lands of hunting and gathering, food and medicine, honoured and stewarded by the peoples these lands know. A camp there, a healing centre, red dresses to honour our missing, shifting wind alive with their names. This time, I watch it live, weeks after UNDRIP is adopted, amid self-congratulations, unanimity, millennia late, misaligned. This time, bell swing of her cape in prayer, full throttle heart song rings along the water, the school bell alarms air, the fire leaps, devours the fraudulent paper of injunction. Goons in police garb, army fatigues, sharpshooters, drones, helicopters, guns, SWAT games, and weaponry, their paltry white goons speak. And our matriarchs sing. Call in the ones the land knows, the water knows, ancestors, flames of red dresses. When the arrests come, they sing the women's warrior song, the one we all know. I hum it on the bus, jaw clenched, as the cops arrest them one by one, as they drive a truck over sacred fire mid ceremony my heart is tractored ripped as earth i work through a day fractured cells singed with only witness then the dome of night i am walking and look south and there the moon and venus midwinter gate of light it's as if my bones are flung up gathered and held by the shining even as i am not the one arrested i am not among the disappeared nor am i relative to these lands after this time red dresses lift in wind Song line of blood in all the directions. All the times. Dear, so dear, the resistances. Just one cup is gentled by the wavering. Removes one dress with tender hands. Before discarding it. Dismantling. Though everything remains. This old story. Old, old intervention. My cells cleave. Hope runnels out. Weeks later, I meet an old friend. Our long conversation, a loose red thread. We speak of this day between silences, the sludge and muck of it. We speak of this day by turns between silences, low sounds in our throats, under what language can't offer us. And there, few words, long kindness. I am held up. We are held up. Light and breath where our eyes meet, latch softly blue swing of an old gate gate of slow horses around us despite this tyranny despite this always threadbare permission despite the atrocities frayed earth are missing there are drums across the world for an end the last bell sound does not silence. And this is just a light poem, um, this is just one of those ones that sometimes comes easily, and it's nice to finish uh, reading with something. Um, Less complicated. Mm -hmm. Because light and lightness exist, because invention's name is joy, because the heart wands and makes song, because the heart waxes and makes song, because the presence of song is belonging, because kindness reaches, seven blue poems arrive. Because spaciousness and longing. Because sound becomes song. Because river current, wolf call, snow geese and breathlessness. Because tenderness gathers living to us. Because here, for now, blue is the color of sky. Because sky holds our stories. Because sky holds the stories we cannot we cannot. Because dwelling terrifies, weighs us. Because terror exists and love in the face of it. Because some understanding has no language. Because wild horses and a star midwinter.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I start my interviews with a bit of an an odd question. Um, if you've been listening, you might be prepared, but it is, if you could read only one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, which would it be and why?
1: Uh, probably it would be The Dream of a Common Language by Adrian Rich. Um, I don't really watch TV, although I have been binge watching lately, but um, I think... Whenever I am lost um, and I need, my heart needs renewal, I go to Adrienne Rich, an American poet who I think her complex witness is something that always renews me. So kind of a genius person, right? And um, I think that she has a very deep engagement with the possibility of abundance for everyone, as well as keen insight into the ways in which a range of marginalizations hold us back from that. Um, So she's a voice that I have relied on throughout my reading life for many years. And, um, you know, I just read recently, think it's from dream of a common language um a poem called translations in which she talks about the embrace of the poem and it's a way in which she has always worked with an awareness of the binaries in our language and in our thinking and in our myths um and a deep trust in the power of poetry to embrace all of that tangled as it is so
0: yeah I I love her work I'm thinking of a book of hers that I have on my bookshelf right now which the title is escaping me right now Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your beautiful book of course and it was interesting in hearing you talk about the poems you read um, today about where some of them came from and I know that um, some time has passed between this Mm -hmm. collection and your previous one and I'm always I think I've become increasingly curious in um, the time that it takes for people to create work, because I think being a creative person in a capitalist economy is a very strange thing. And so what was the process like for you to create this book? And what did you need to feel ready to put another collection out?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a lovely question. So I think, um, you know, if I were to trace back the trajectory of my writing life, my poems kind of began to emerge. um, And then I immediately went and did an MFA um, because I wanted to learn some more. And that's just my instinct is to go to a learning environment when I encounter something in myself that was new. And, um, And so I did that. And at that time, you know, it takes a long time to imagine that you are, in fact, a poet. And I think that when I think back to my practice at that time, it was kind of really uh, connected to a daily writing practice. And um, I my children were young at the time and I would get up early in the morning and um, write before they got up and, you know, then did. Did the master's degree, and um, which really was at that time at UBC quite artist-led. We could kind of, you know, we moved through the required courses and everything, but it was very much a practical kind of learning environment. And then I think, as you say, um, that balance of having time and space for poetry and um, time and resources to keep a roof over one's head, and etc., is always a balance for all of us. And um, I remember Don Mackay was one of my teachers at a certain point, and he just said to us very calmly, "Don't quit your day job if you're a poet," <laughs> which was really helpful because when you're immersed in an MFA program, you can feel like everybody's writing poems and it's the most important thing in the world to do, and you know, it is important to me, but um, it food's really good too. So I think that I had a fairly consistent daily practice for many, many years, and then my work life became um, quite demanding in a good way. Um, I've had the great gift of having meaning always in my work life and um, doing work that really mattered to me and felt both joyful and also useful and so there were probably five years or so there where I just moved when the poem emerged and I didn't kind of force myself to my table and um and then when the pandemic hit so I had a consistent practice but it wasn't kind of daily Mm. then when the pandemic hit, we were able to work from home and I uh, learned how to teach online so I could continue to teach through that time, but I didn't have to go back and forth to work and I didn't have to. I had less demand in my work life at that time and um, the poets that I, worked, that I was teaching at that time decided, um, let's do a poem a day for the month of April. So we did that all together and under normal circumstances, I don't really share my work with my students, but this time because we were all at home and I did. And so I wrote a poem every day for the month of April and most of them did too. And so by the time it was over, we had like hundreds of emails back and forth and that was really great. So for me really time and space is critical um, to maintaining a practice. And so then the other thing was that happened was community. Um, Mona had contacted me. This is Mona Fertig from Mother Tongue, um, who really this book is partly Mona's. Um, she has been such uh, an artery for poetry and and art all through her life, um, and I'm very grateful to have worked with her on this book and others. Anyway, she had. St- emailed about a year before and said do you have a manuscript and I said oh I'm gonna need a year to finish this (laughs) (laughs) and so then she emailed a year later how's that coming and so it just happened it just kind of the synergy just all came together I had a kind of core or maybe um it's better to say a framing of some poems that had happened the previous you know five or seven years or so and then The poems that I wrote during the pandemic and they sort of were speaking to one another though that wasn't really an intention they just kind of began to speak to one another and so you know as all of those things aligned I just sort of said yes and I in some way I think that feeling of feeling finished with a manuscript is something that is more rare than we would imagine that you know, maybe you want to give the poems away while they are still moving. And that's how this book felt to me. Um, My first book, I felt much more completed and I also felt much more attached to it. Um, At this point in my life and given the world as it is, it just felt like the right time to let the energy and the questions and the concerns that are in this book Um, move out into community and I'm very aware that no matter how much you work on a poem when you give it away someone else is going to read it differently than what you had intended and I find that quite beautiful actually so yeah I feel um, I love that the cover of this book has so much motion in it because I, I feel it holds that kind of experience that I had of just offering the poems out outward um rather than you know holding them holding them as mine Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah something I observed while I was reading the collection was this kind of balance between like there seemed to be a real urgency to the poems and maybe it's because of the theme some of the themes you were you were dealing with but there was also like a real call for like stillness and observation and I wondered if if you could talk about like the balance between those two kind of movements or ways of being in the world and how you tried to capture that in in the collection
1: yeah well I think um well I think that you know I'm very very introverted <laughs> but I also have had a very long-standing engagement with communities and um, in some ways the communities that I grew up with gave me that gift of understanding when people work together what can happen and so whenever I whenever I feel I have to speak out about some public thing that is um, of concern to me it's it's just a natural thing that I have to reflect first. And that kind of song space between witness and how am I going to respond to this um, is very, very important to me. And it's a long practice now. I kind of think all the time. And, um, you know, lots of people say, you think too much. And maybe that's true, but that's just the way you know, that's just the story of my own becoming, right? And there's a way in which embodying my concern and thinking it through before I say the first thing that comes out of my mouth, which might be quite angry or, you know, outraged. um, For me, that has been a gift of poetry. It's a way to give myself time and space to think through and maybe reconsider my immediate outrage so that I'm just not passing on outrage that I'm actually contributing to something that might be helpful, either to another reader or to somebody else who's working in community. There have been times in my life when i worked, you know, 60, 70 hours a week and I remember, you know, I remember when I was younger, getting emails at four in the morning from other women who were working in community about related issues. And then I became one of those women who was sending out emails (laughs) at four in the morning to keep a campaign going or whatever. Um, I can see now in my work life that I've moved from sort of, um, you know, a kind of community-based frontline kind of practice. And then around to some thinking and policy work. And I can trace maybe two or three cycles like that. Um, So that that also has happened across time to be out and learning um, what is the effect of a particular law or policy uh, on the people for whom it's meant to be helpful, even though quite often it is not actually helpful. And so then being able to, you know, speak to those you know legislators or community leaders to say but this this is what's really happening and um, sometimes that works to change things and sometimes it doesn't I also I think um, silence has been also an aspect of my life I'm I come from a family of um, you know farmers and musicians yes but also there are theologians in my family and so, I grew up in an environment where sitting and thinking was allowed, and also contemplation was valued. Um, so, I think it was just a an outcome of that environment that allowed me to think first and talk second, and think first and act second, think first and create second. Right.
0: It's interesting that you were talking of binaries in in um, Adrian Rich's work because I noticed this kind of the intersection of the of nature and the body, but also of nature and and industry uh, in your work. And I think often that maybe because. So many of us live in urban centers, we're always kind of faced with that intersection of nature and industry and um mm-hmm. how our bodies interact with nature in a city setting. But I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those themes in your work.
1: Mhm well i think um I think two things um the industry part i think an outcome of my community work has been to learn that. Our systems of government and capitalism are not working for people and they're not working for the planet. And I think that there's a part of me that's waiting for those things to come undone. And that's kind of the perception that I bring to any project. I don't have a lot of hope that if we continue on this path of you know, capitalist resource extraction, um, the building, building, building that even we're talking about the Olympics again in 2030. Like I, I, I'm just past the point in being able to imagine any of that being of benefit to any of us really, but most especially aware of the ones for whom it would be the most costly. And so... I have, I guess I, you know, I guess I'm just waiting. I think these systems need to come undone and um, they won't come undone on their own, certainly. But for right now, my way of supporting uh, sustainability is really to make art, to support the ones who are making art and especially art that is engaged with these conversations. And then the other part of it for me, I think, is, um, as I said, I grew up in a rural, very rural um, environment for which I'm grateful, but I also have worked in a park for 23 years. And what I've come to understand across that time is a kind of, shift in my own relationship with the ancestors of these territories and by that I mean the lake and I mean the trees and I mean the birds and I mean um um, imagining and reminding myself and others that the notion of the domination of the human in any environment Is something that I've that has shifted and that's just disintegrating for me. Um, And so, and so it is easier then for me to notice that there's a hummingbird that lives in our neighborhood now because I don't think of my neighborhood as the place where I enact my life. I think about it as a shared place, right? So it's just a shift in the awareness of you know really my own importance in anything but also you know the emergence of a practice of walking as softly as I can in the environments where I find myself. And uh that's an ongoing meditation really because nobody I don't think anybody you know can walk without harm on the planet. So you know, without wanting to be heavy about that, I can allow that our curiosity has taken us to this place and our innovation, our ability to innovate has taken us to this place. But quite clearly, we're in a tipping where, you know, something else has to happen if, if the planet is to survive. Yeah. Than that. yeah, yeah.
0: You um, mentioned birds, and I feel like I I need to ask about birds because they're so present in this collection—the mm-hmm. mention of them in the poems themselves, but also the little images of the, the different birds. And what is the significance of of the birds in the collection, but also in your own life and your own uh, your own daily walk on this planet?
1: Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that. John Malcolm was the one who um created those uh images for the book and that was Mona's idea to put them through and I loved it. So thank thank you again to both of them. Um I think again there's not there isn't a time in my life when I was without birds. So you know, we had every spring a robin's nest in our cherry tree. And we had cranes in the garden and um, my mother would take us out when the geese flew over in those V formations, you know, to point out the geese are migrating. And um, when my daughters were little, we lived near the sea and so the motion of the tides and the trees and the way the birds move with and in awareness of those things was very present all through those years. And then um, when we moved to East Van, I was bereft because um, there were many fewer trees and many fewer birds, but for some reason there are more now, it seems to me, or maybe I just wasn't able to notice them. I um, I think that the motion And the ease of that motion that birds have and the sounds are things that um, connect to my own natural perceptions, right? So some of us are visual. I tend to be more in my ears and I think that that motion that birds make um, it's almost like writing in the sky, isn't it and And so I always noticed that and um i otherwise, I don't know. I was surprised you know when I looked back and saw how many birds I think it's a gift also to me, who is a very sturdy <laughs> um methodical kind of worker that liberation is is a part of it too Yesterday, I was at National Indigenous Peoples Day celebrations, and uh, I was listening to some Indigenous stories and lots of Indigenous songs. And uh, I was I noticed I was noticing the birds So someone was telling a raven story. And of course, a raven came And Then I was just sitting there and this hummingbird came all the way around me and then went off. And so it's like, also walking in blessing right that the energies of all those creatures and uh humans and non-humans that have sustained the planet are still with us and i think to me it's a a kind of um affirming to to just pay attention to that yeah honor it in some way yeah
0: it's it's interesting for me with birds because I don't I don't know if I always was like super aware of of birds like I've I've always watched them. My parents always called me eagle eye because I like it yeah. didn't matter where there was a bald eagle, but I would spot it. Nice. But now it's just like I can't help but like watch mm-hmm. birds and be aware of birds. And I've become very in tune like the sound of hummingbirds. And I don't know if I ever knew that before uh, mm-hmm. in the last like five years or something.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think there are more hummingbirds than like than there were in my growing up. I don't remember seeing a lot of hummingbirds. It was quite rare. and um, But in the last few years, yeah, I've noticed more too and that beautiful sound they make. And um, last summer, there was a tree just outside the studio where I teach for most of the summer. And I think that there must have been... Um, I guess they planted some salvia around the outside of the tree which is dark red and purple and hummingbirds like that and so some days like I would see seven eight ten you know amazing numbers of them and it's just I don't know something about something joyful watching that watching that motion right yeah
0: My last question for you is around community and because you have mentioned community so much and I noticed in reading your book that you you're very much in you're writing to other people, friends and collaborators and poets, but you also seem to be very much in conversation with other creators in your work. And I wondered what it means for you to be in conversation with other poets and other authors and creative people, both in your own work, but as part of your practice.
1: Yeah, um, that's a lovely question. Thank you, Megan. For me, it's just essential. I think, you know, reading itself is a way that has always helped me balance out some of the questions that I might be carrying. um, And maybe, um, you know, to encounter someone who's thinking something similar to me, but has made it that much more beautiful or that much more meaningful it's just renewing right and i you know work with a lot of artists and what i've come to understand is how creative process is feels to me as a a kind of nourishing or life-affirming act right and there's similarities across forms so there's a humility in encountering um, a creative inquiry that you haven't got the answer for yet. But somehow between the materials and conversations with other people, the work itself finds its way. And so that, that kind of to be in a collaborative or a creative circle, and even if it's not a very close engagement, but just knowing that other people know that Sometimes you might need to be humming to yourself while you're walking (laughs) because you're waiting for something. Um, It acknowledges the life of the interior, and I think that that's important. And I also feel the corollary is also true, that, that community collaborations can help us as creatives with all of those balancing things that we need to know how to do to keep ourselves safe in a capitalist system. Right. So, you know, someone will say, Oh, there's a really good physiotherapist who's cheap, you know, because we're always balancing that. Um, Here's how you can do this, that, and the other. Right. And we help each other out in that way, because in some way when you have made the choice um, to center creativity and practice in your life then there are certain other things that you might not be able to attend to with as much prowess right and so and so we do help each other out in that way and that's been a great gift to me and then also just the art itself as I've said I read a lot and um, that has held me up all through many many years of my life just in terms of honoring those questions and um, also honoring plain beauty, like to make beauty out of language, as opposed to making, um, you know, that sanitized public discourse that we're all sort of trying to navigate right now. Um, it's it's a gift and it's nourishing and affirming. Um, but also, you know, so like yesterday, we had some beautiful stories and songs that, we're from the lands here, and there's really nothing like that to just renew joy um, and um, and hope. I think, um, and so I try my best to nourish myself as much as possible. And I'm very grateful to be able to have followed my own curiosities, but also when I am able to witness the sort of creative trajectory of others. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's almost like a community. It's kind of building, right? It just feels like, um, yes, art, art matters. And this is one way we can share with one another that will help us keep going. Yeah.
0: That was Shauna Paul, author of Blue Gate. Blue Gate is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Tanya Christensen. Tanya is the author of A Soft Place to Fall, which is a finalist for the 2022 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.